Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. Second Samuel 23 is where we're going to be tonight. Uh, we're going to try to finish the book of Second Samuel, uh, which has been a long journey. If you count both First and Second Samuel, we've been in, in this, these two books for a long time. Verse 1. Now these are the last words of David. Thus says David, the son of Jesse. Thus says the man raised up on high, the anointed of God of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel. So read this as his last words. So last week we got to do kind of the song that is the one probably David's favorite song got laid on as kind of the song of his life. And now we kind of get these last words from David. We don't know if they were on his deathbed or just the last ones that got recorded as an official act of the king, so to speak. Um, but here's the record. He has four different titles. Three of them are passive. One of them's active. And I think that's awesome. Right? Of all the things David did in life, he is the son of Jesse, coming from a humble beginning. Right, He's a shepherd's family guy. Raised up on high, David never planned or aspired. He was raised up by God. Um, he didn't go for the promotion, so to speak. He never applied for the job, um, but God put him in that position. He's anointed is the third one, a unique calling from God himself. He didn't anoint himself. Someone else did it. And then last but not least is the active one. This is the only one of the four that David had to do something to make happen. And it's the one they saved for last, the sweet psalmist. Um, David had a gift that God gave him. When he was a shepherd, he was writing music. When he was a king, he was writing music. When he was in caves, he was writing music. David took the one thing that God just put in his heart that he loved to do, and he used it. And of all the things in his life, that's, what, that's kind of his tombstone epithet, epitaph. He's a sweet psalmist. He was a songwriter. And to know that the king of Israel, the active claim to fame was his love of God and how he sang about God, I just think that's a beautiful thing. So here's the last words of David, last official words. Uh, the spirit of the Lord spoke to me and by his word, and his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men might, must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, like the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after the rain. So verse 2, David's claiming that he's aware of a Holy Spirit that inspires and guides the tongue. When you hear people that are biblically ignorant, they'll say things like the Holy Spirit's only in the New Testament. Uh, that's just not the case, right? Especially when you look at David. Or they'll say things like there's a different Holy Spirit in the New Testament and the Old Testament. I don't know if there's any evidence for that at all. Uh, Old Testament's in Hebrew, New Testament's largely in Greek. Uh, but we do get this word in the Hebrew, the Spirit. It was in the song last week, Ruach. And I was told I don't do the CH right with the Hebrew. It's Ruach or something to that effect. Um, but there is the Spirit of God that David's claiming was actually on his tongue the God of Israel, Elohim there. And then in verse 3, we see the word rock or sewer. All of those words were in the song last week that we looked at. So these are kind of reflections of that song too, 
or at least you see hints of that. Uh, the Lord is my rock. Uh, and so we see that same thing here. So the Spirit's word in verse 2, God says the Lord spoke in verse 3. Again, we see three applications or three beings, so to speak, working as though they're a singular being. So we see both that the Spirit of the Lord spoke to him, the Spirit of the Lord spoke to me, and by his word was on my tongue, and the God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. That sounds kind of confusing in the English, right? But he's doing the same thing he did in the song. There's the Father, there's the nameless Son, and there's the Holy Spirit. And they're all getting treated like they're one being. And it creates language that's technically accurate if you think of a trinity. It's just confusing if you don't think of a trinity. So, But there is a God that speaks. There's a God that is. There's a God that works through David and speaks to him directly and through him. Um, and then you get the, the message of what's coming through his mouth. He who rules over men must be just. So we're getting into government tonight. The argument for justice is a tough argument to make. And it's an argument that's been made for thousands of years. It's not new. Don't, don't let CNBC or Fox lie to you and say that this, these are new cutting-edge issues that have never been around before. They've been around forever. There's the idea of people wanting to do whatever they're going to do, even if it violates other people. And then there's an idea that there's law and order that dictates how people can behave in a society. And those two forces, those two arguments, have been at heels with each other. They're the cause of every war that's ever happened. They're at the beginning of strife, is the idea of people ignoring the law and doing whatever they please. It's just been around forever. So the person that rules over men, a governor or any kind of authority, has to be just. And the word just has been well-defined through the Old Testament. I'm not going to do a whole study on justice. But David's claiming that the person who's ruling essentially should be there for justice because essentially justice protects the weak. Justice makes it so that we, powerful and strong people can't railroad weaker people. And when that happens, justice makes amends for those situations. If there's a murder, the murderer's life is to be um, forsaken because of the murder. If there's a theft, they're supposed to give back what they've stolen plus reparations. So in all these cases, this idea of like someone who's in ruling positions, they should see justice as a good thing. And we know, and I think it's obvious when you look around the world, there's some people that don't like justice. And they don't want a civil, orderly society. So those, that conversation's one that's just been going on for a long time. The argument of David is that this person should be ruling in the fear of God. The loving of justice never trumps the love of mercy. And that ruling in the fear of God means that at the end of a ruler's life, or David's life, God's going to take that person's job into account. That they have to give account for what they've done as leaders. In fact, we all have to give account for what we've done because God's given us all responsibilities in our life, people that we're supposed to take care of and love and protect. So they're supposed to be ruling in the fear of God like the light. And again, that phrase, like the light of the morning. But that idea that the just and God-fearing people are like lights in the world is not a concept that will go away in the Old Testament. Jesus uses that very concept of that you are the light of the world. And that idea comes kind of from David's writing or it comes right from the Holy Spirit. David's not perfect, but the degree to which he keeps law and order in the land is the degree to which he shines a light for the people of Israel. That there is one country on the planet that lives under the law. 
There's one country where the weak can be safe and find refuge. There's one country where justice gets done. And in that, Israel shines under David. It's going to shine even more under Solomon. But what makes it shine isn't David's personal perfection, but David's willingness to love law and order and be a king that demands it. Like We even saw that he failed to demand it of his own sons, right? That's where it gets tough for a king, is to bring that kind of justice and law to your own children. And so you could argue David failed in that regard, but I think David recognizes that. Like this is the area where he's saying rulers need to be like this, even though he didn't necessarily do it all the time. So David's reign is the most like the light of the Messiah, but because of his failures, he was not the Messiah. And I think David would be the first to admit that. Um, Matthew 1.1, Jesus is introduced as the son of David. So of all the kings of Israel, the heart of David is the most similar to the heart of the Messiah. And we could see that David's hesitation to bring justice was because of his love and because of his mercy. Even when he should have brought it, he didn't, to the point that it caused him problems. And in the same way, Jesus' love of mercy and, and, and care for people is what holds his hand until the judgment day. He's waiting for people as much as he can. So David and Jesus, comparison points, they both came out of Bethlehem. They're both absolutely unafraid to fight the battles of God. Like there's no fear when they get into it with people. Um, they both had rebellions against them and they both had betrayals against them, like deep, close betrayals. Both of them go away and both of them return to the throne. Uh, we haven't seen Jesus come back yet, but there's a promise there that he will. Where we got to see David's return to Jerusalem and to the kingdom, I, I have a feeling when that happens with Jesus, it's going to mirror a lot what, what happened with David. Uh, it says, like the tender grass, obviously this is metaphorical. Uh, the king is not like an actual blade of grass, but we see like a tender grass. What's the feature of a tender blade of grass in the morning? Is that it's growing. It's got the water that it needs, and the sunlight hits it, and it's a growing being. So you look at a ruler, and they should be growing all the time. Uh, so we say that like you should be a lifetime learner. You should, no matter where you're at in life, you should be learning and growing and pursuing that. Revelations 22.16 says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I'm the root and the offspring of David, and I'm the bright and morning star. Likely a reference to these verses that summarize David's life that David claimed, I am the person that David was referring to. So David's finishing strong. He's in love with God. We've seen all of his failures, but at the end of the day, he's delighting in the law and he's celebrating the light. He's going to end strong. This is not the case with Saul. He kind of went the opposite direction. And it's not really the case with Solomon. He kind of wastes a large part of his life. But David is as close as you get to a good king, a good human king. Verse 5. Although my house is not so with God, like I said, David's the first to admit it, yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure, for this is all my salvation and all my desire. Will he not make it increase? Despite all of his mistakes, look at what God's done. So where Nathan said David was forgiven, the Bible consistently will look back on the reign of David as good, which is true to the idea that God forgives sins. And even though the Bible in Samuel kind of outlines and shows us the ugly side of the kingship, that forgiveness that Nathan promised actually gets applied. So as we go forward, they're going to look back at David, and he's going to be right up there with Moses, one of the good ones, both of which we, we know where they've sinned. So God works with David despite David's mistakes, despite his feelings, despite, despite his sin. God's still using that kingship as a whole. 
And some argue that David looking at his house here in verse 5, and that he's looking at living descendants, and maybe he's not seeing that in his sons there's a worthy successor to him. So maybe he's saying, in my house it's not so with God. Like maybe I, you don't see the blessing right now of what's going to happen with my house. But as we go forward into f- the future, there's an everlasting covenant. So in future generations, God's going to do great things with this house. And so some could argue that, I mean, that's one way to look at that verse. An everlasting covenant is not about a mortal David. It's about an everlasting God that will keep his promises. And I take great hope in that. Like, my life is not about mortal me. It's about an everlasting eternal God and what he has planned for my life and my soul. So God's doing a work with David. David recognizes it. He's claimed the Holy Spirit is telling him what to say right now. So the Holy Spirit's trying to work through David to tell something to us about the nature of things. For this is all my salvation. His roots are in an eternal God, not in his mortal sin. His salvation at the end of it all is not in his house, verse 5, but in God's promises, the end of verse 5. I think that's a great point. And all my desire, he says, that's exactly what David wants. It is my desire to not put my hope in myself. It's my desire to put my hope in God. And for David, he's kind of expressing that idea. It's all his desire that it works like this. And then he says, will he not make it increase? If God started a work in David, won't he finish that work too? Won't he consummate his promise? And this is great news for backslidden Christians or people struggling with sin. If God started something good in you, isn't he going to finish that? Doesn't he have a plan for where that's going? Maybe that plan's going to unfold over time, or even after you're dead and gone, the impact of your life will affect other people. Like, you may not know that impact, but will he not make it increase? Won't he take the things of your life and turn them into beauty? Won't he take those things and make them wonderful? Because that's God's salvation, and that's our hope. We just do our thing day by day, and we trust that God makes it something beautiful. Verse 6. But the sons of rebellion shall all be as thorns thrust away because they cannot be taken with the hands. But the man who touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft of the spear and they shall be utterly burned with fire in their place. Okay, this is warrior David talking. Again, this is the end of his life. This is how he sees the world. And he's, and he's I think, praying that his sons hear this advice in the short term like knowing that it's part of the gospel. I don't know if he knew that when he was writing these words. Uh, Verse 6, the word but starts it out. We have to pay attention to words like that. It seems like a totally different point that's being made, but because the word but is there, that's one T, not two. Some of you were thinking that. The but implies that it's the opposite situation. So what he's talking about with this combat situation is the exact opposite of what he just got done talking about with the sunlight and the new grass and all those good things. So we want to see that that changes, that that shift is in light of that other piece. So the sons of rebellion would be the opposite of those people that are serving the Lord. Either he's not talking about Israel or that he's talking about folks that don't like an ordered government because remember the blessing was a government of law and order. So he could be talking about the people that are against that. Again, the word but can mean a lot of different things. But David knows the enemies of God are all around him. He knows that as he dies, the enemies of God are everywhere. Um, They're coming. I mean, honestly, David's not dumb. He can see that these pressures are there. 
Like there's folks that don't like the house of David, which just got referenced in verse 5. And they're still there. So as he's dying, Solomon's still got to deal with these situations and these enemies that aren't resolved, both inside the house of Israel and outside the house of Israel. The battle's there. The best that you can hope for is that those forces that are against God are at least subdued. They're at least not getting in the way of God's rule. So whoever rules after David has to keep these folks at bay. Right? And then you get to this interesting language. They can't, be ta- they can't be kept at bay with the hands. But the man who touches them must be armed with iron and shaft and spear. The idea is that there's a thorniness to certain people that hate God. And the best the people that got, if you get in there and touch that thorn with your hands, all you're going to do is get cut up. The thorn's going to win. So you don't try to push back a thorn bush with your bare hands. And that's kind of the metaphor here. What you do is you, you get armed with, well, good heavy gloves, but they don't say that. With an iron and a shaft of spear, you get a big long stick to push back the brambles, to keep them away. And now thinking as a king or a ruler of a nation, surrounded by enemies of Israel, what do you do with the Ammonites, with the Philistines? You get a big long stick and you keep them back out of your territory. And don't try to do that with kid gloves. So... The utterly burning with fire here is not an image of damnation. It's an image of what you do with thorns when you're a farmer. You get them back as far away from your crops as you can, and you burn them to soot so they don't keep growing. And that's the idea of a king pushing back the enemies of God, is you want these nations subdued enough to where they don't hurt the people of Israel. And as the Philistines grow, they attack and they kill people. So you keep them back as far as you can so they don't hurt the innocent. So this image of pushing people back and dealing with them, obviously it's metaphorical. Obviously David's talking about kingship because that's the context of this entire verse. And it's the opposite of the things that are secure in verse 5 and the object of salvation and desire in verse 6. right? Or I'm sorry, in verse 5 still. So it's, it, there's a contrast between the two. God's in control. You can rest in God. Don't worry. You delight in God. I mean, David knows all these things, and there's battles in God to fight. And for us, Jesus says we fight spiritual battles. We don't fight against physical issues, but we fight against powers and principalities. So then we get to this list. Again, lots of appendixes here at the end of the book. We get the list of mighty men. I'm going to read the whole list, and I'm not going to break it down name by name. I didn't see any patterns or anything particularly interesting in the names. This is honestly just a recording of these Wonderful men that surrounded David. And we get an image at some level of like, it is a healthy thing for the people of God to be surrounded with people they respect and regard. Like this book could just be about David. In fact, if you look at like Ashurbanipal and you look at Pharaoh, the pharaohs of Egypt, Hashemiphet, when you read their texts, it's all about the king. And it's this utter glorification of the Assyrian king Uh, or Hakid, or the Babylonian king. And those ancient texts just take their king and make them into legendary figures. But the Bible, written at roughly the same time, actually lists the great and wonderful people that David respected and surrounded himself with. That's a totally different ancient text. It's not even in the same format. And it's, I think it's beautiful that there's this regard here that this whole book isn't just about puffing David up and putting him on a pedestal. David was surrounded by a wonderful people, Right? Ladies, don't be offended that these are all guys. This is in an era of warfare, and the people that David surrounded himself were warriors because that's who he needed next to him. 
These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Joshua Bathshebeth, the Tachmanite, chief among the captains. He was called Adino the Esnite because he'd killed 800 men at one time. And after him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo. <laughs> I'm sorry. This is the middle school teacher in me. It's hard to read those and not chuckle a little bit. Son of Dodo. Uh, I lost my train of thought. The Ahoahite, one of the three mighty men with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle and the men of Israel had retreated. Verse 10, he arose and attacked the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand struck the sword, stuck to the sword. In other words, he's got blisters on his hand and those blisters then the blood caked and then they couldn't get the hand off the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day and the people returned after him only to plunder and after him was Shamath, the son of Agi, the, Hanani, the Haranite, Harahite, Harahite. Thanks, Mandy. I appreciate it. The Philistines had gathered together in a troop where there was a piece of ground full of lentils. <laughs> and so the people fled from the Philistines, uh, which is why they eat a lot of lentil soup, maybe. But he stationed himself in the middle of the field defended it and killed the Philistines. So the Lord brought about a great victory. Let's just look at some themes that come out of this. The word mighty for mighty men in the Hebrew is the word gibor. It's an intensive word. It means strong, but I think a better translation for us would be like super strong, right? It's, an, it's kind of an emphatic word that gets stuck in front of these. Bold is how it's, so it's not, the attribute of the gibor is not just physical strength. There's a boldness to somebody that's Gabor, right? A courage, a brazenness about them. They're a magnified one, literally. So we're going to see that these mighty men are later called the 30. First Chronicles 12.4, even in this chapter, the reference to the 30 comes up. Um, they're a tough, heroic, loyal, godly, law-abiding group of guys. And they surround David and they essentially build this kingdom uh, verse 12, these are the, the last stands that get made here. These are all people that are willing to die, the first three that are listed. They're in a spot that looks like certain death, and they plop themselves on their ground and say, if I'm going to die, I'm going to die fighting. Like, at some level, that stirs my soul, just knowing there's humans like that out there. This will not go. It's Gandalf on the little bridge saying, you shall not pass. And it's, he knows he's going down. Right, But there's that idea of saying, I'm going to put my stake in the ground right here. I'm going to stand in the lentil field, and nobody's moving me unless I'm dead. And that resolution to fight the enemies of God and to say, I will not budge on this issue. This willingness to lose your job. You know, it's such a meek comparison to these people risking their lives. But they will stand for law and order. They'll stand for the kingdom of David over anything else, and it doesn't matter if their lives are forfeit to make it happen. It's worth the trade. Goodness is worth my life. And I'll make that trade in a second. And to have men like that means you're going to have a strong country. You'll have warriors, right? Actually, there's 37 on the list, even though they say the 30. So the 30 is more of like a title. It's not an actual, literal 30 people, because even in, if anyone who counts can count to 37. So we see an example where numbers sometimes in the Old Testament are rounded or they're used as like a, a term, but it's not meant to be a literal count. And that'll be important in the censuses, because people will say there's errors in the Bible, and you'll hear that nonsense. 
and you'll look at these censuses where they round it off to the nearest 100,000, they're not attempting to count like we do in the modern world. They're attempting to say around 300,000, and they're giving you an idea. And the same thing's true with the 30. Uh, the writer does not intend it to be a literal number, but it's a number that's stuck. Or literalists, if you look at that wing of theologians, they'll say, actually, Uriah's at the end of the list, if you look down to the end of the chapter, and Uriah's dead. So maybe this is 30 because at any one time there was only 30 people, right? That said, you got to kind of do some dances to make the Bible work that way for you. And you know in the Bible study, we're just going to study what's here. Uh, what's here is a writer that knows how to count to 30, and he's still calling them the 30, um, even though he lists 37. So strong leaders help fight. I think that's the bigger idea here. In context of the ordered light versus the burning thorns, these are the, the 30 that fought for the, the, the light instead of the thorns. These are the ones holding the spear, pushing the thorns back. And they're the ones that kind of opened up a world where the law of God could reign supreme. So this is as impactful as anything David did in his life. Yes, he was a psalmist and a songwriter, but what probably his the largest contribution to the nation of Israel is he took and he trained each of these men in what the law of God says, and he taught them to be noble and dignified. They didn't start out that way. Back in 1 Samuel 22, if you want to flip back to that, in verse 2 it says, everyone that was in distress and everyone that was in debt, everyone that was discontented, gathered themselves unto him, David, and he became a captain over them, and they were with him about 400 men. Of those 400 men, about 30 of them became mighty. But they didn't start out mighty. I think that's important. The disciples of Jesus did not start out as the apostles with little shining halos around their head. They started out as fishermen, and quite frankly, kind of a motley crew of fishermen and tax collectors and zealots and all sorts of things. God, started, God starts with humble people, with humble beginnings, because then when they become mighty, they don't get the glory for it. God gets the glory for it. And the same thing's true of these mighty men. They didn't start out as mighty men. They started out as kind of hooligans and in, in a lot of debt. Like they didn't even know how to manage their finances. So David took these broken people. He loved them. He taught them. And then he helped them to find roles that they could thrive in. That's probably David's greatest skill is he had a great team and he knew where to put people. And I admire that. Mighty starts first. But dealing with individuals is the foundation for that mightiness, right? There's a personal victory that has to happen over sin for every single one of these guys on this list, for them to become that kind of person. So that growth in the word explains the loyalty that they have. If they came to David in debt and broken and in distress, and they come away from David as mighty, guess where they put their thankfulness? They thank the Lord that this David guy serves. That's why they were loyal. When Absalom comes to take over the kingdom and we saw David just walking out, who was walking out with him? The people that were there before David was David. Like they knew David when he was just some guy teaching the Bible in some caves. And that's the David they fell in love with. And they're loyal to that David. Whether or not he's a king makes no difference to these men because they know that the change in their heart, that loyalty is owed to the guy who helped teach them the word. And they stick with him. And this is incredible. They stick with him when their life is on the line. When they're running away from Absalom, they're thinking they're going to get killed. When they ran from Saul for three, five years, however long it was, death could happen any day. And you know what? Death had already happened for these guys a long time ago. Whatever life they have is because they're following this law that 
God gave to David. And this law seems like something you should build a kingdom on. Righteousness, goodness. Reminds me of the medieval knights that said, you know what, at least in our part of the world, we're in the dark ages, but in our part of the world, we're going to live by a code. And at least in our little part of the world, that code reigns supreme. And we're going to take an oath, and we're going to stick to it, and we're going to fight and live and die for it. We will not have the weak getting hurt in our part of the world. And suddenly, Europe came out of the dark ages. Well, not suddenly. It takes some time. God makes mighty out of weak people that make a decision for loyalty. That's what's going on with these mighty men. And it explains why they're so loyal. Uh, I like how Charles Spurgeon says it. Many cowards are skulking about to tr try to shame them. Many are undecided. Let them see a brave man, and he will be the standard bearer around whom they will rally. There's lots of weak people in our world that are just looking for one person that has some character and takes a stand on some things. On this, I will not move. And God gives us such easy things to take a stand on, on his word. I won't move on some of these things. And that, that alone isn't like we have to be super smart or special to be that person. We just need to know what God says in his word. And you stand and suddenly people come to that. And that's what happened with David. He took a stand and said, I'm going to live by the law of God. And suddenly people gather around that idea because at least there's somebody with some backbone. The individual integrity is then a blessing to a country which becomes a blessing to every nation around Israel that doesn't have to worry about necessarily having constant warfare, right? I'm sure the Ammonites were thankful when David didn't slaughter all of them. He subdued them and pushed them back, right? But there's this idea that healthy churches likewise are, in, are a place that broken people can gather. And they're a place that people can come and find the love of Christ and the love amongst the people of God. What a sad thing when a church forgets how to love broken people and bring those people into fellowship. And there's so many. So David does that. So I want to read more of the list here of these mighty men, but just think about as we're reading through this list, like what this meant in David's life, right? Even just have 30 guys built an entire kingdom. Then three of the 30 chief men went down at harvest time and came to David at the cave of Adullam. This is before David was anything. And the troop of Philistines encamped in the valley of Rephaim. And David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then Bethlehem. Fancy how that word, that town keeps popping up. And David said with longing, Oh, that someone would give me a drink of the water from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. Remember he grew up here? So it's like, oh, I remember that awesome water from the well. And he's just kind of passively saying this. So the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew water from the well of Bethlehem, it was by the gate, and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink it, but poured it out to the Lord. And he said, far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is this not the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things were done by the three mighty men. The point here isn't to point at David, though David's character here is wonderful. It's a great story. The point here in verse, at the end of verse 12 is, or I'm sorry, the end of verse uh, 17 is that this is the kind of guys these were. So there's going to be lots of these stories, but they're just pulling out these three. They don't name any particular mighty men for this story, but this is the kind of guys they were. David's like, oh, I wouldn't mind a drink from that well. And they decide amongst themselves, we're just going to take care of David. This is something we can do. And they risk their lives to get a drink of water for David. Like think of the loyalty here. 
Like, and, and just to minister to somebody else in the body, I'll do whatever it takes to bring joy to them. I remember being in an office meeting and somebody was saying they were going to put on something or whatever and they're like, does anybody have any requests or something? And I was totally joking. And I said, well, you know, a bag of nibs wouldn't be bad. You know, those little licorice cherry things. And I shouldn't have said it. I felt bad when I said it. And I didn't hear anything about it, but a week later when the event was going on, there was my spot to sit and there was a little bag of nibs sitting on the plate. Nowhere near what these mighty men did, but I was so blessed by that. Like a stupid little, I think at the time it was like 89 cents, you know, they got like three pieces in there or something. And I was just so blessed by that. I was like, that was way more thoughtful than I would have thought to be. But that person was just trying to bless and saying, let me just be a blessing to somebody. And it was an awesome thing to do. So David isn't disregarding this gift of water. Notice that in verse 17, he says, far be it from me, O Lord. And he looks at this as a gift from God, not a gift from mighty men. And I think David rightly sees it. When people have the spirit to love one another with those simple gifts and simple acts of kindness, that's the Holy Spirit, you guys. Only God gets us to think of other people in that kind of way. And I think from a biblical perspective, that's absolutely the spirit God puts in us, to love people and care for people more than ourselves, to give our lives in service to others. That's what these mighty men were. Verses 13 through 17, it's remarkable. This isn't a battle story about how tough they were. Even though we just got done reading, these are tough guys. This guy killed 800 men. You know, He stands in a field, sword stuck to his hand. Yes, they were tough. But what made them tough was a heart that was absolutely soft. This beautiful like service attitude towards one another in the body. And that's what's getting highlighted here is you know, this is what was so special about these guys. They were remarkable. David's thirsty and he makes an offhanded comment about the taste of water in Bethlehem and these guys risk their lives to give him a sweet little gift. And when he, he doesn't drink of it, again, he recognizes, it's actually, I think, David trying to honor these guys. He recognizes their willingness to help and instead of him drinking that gift, he pours it out before the Lord. In verse 16, poured it out to the Lord. You know, I'm not going to take this Bethlehem water because these guys risked their lives for it, but I'm going to give it to God because that's what it belongs to. God inspired these men, that gift that they try to give, I'm just going to give it back to God. And honestly, what an image of the church, right? I'm going to take those gifts that we give to each other and we're just going to give them back to God and pay it forward all the way around until you've got a community. So he doesn't take these sacrifices or risks loosely. They're not whims that he takes for granted. He takes them with the greatest of seriousness and he pours it out to the Lord. If we make sacrifices for one another, we don't do it for ourselves. We do it for our king. We don't even do it for the person we're doing the sacrifice for. That sounds kind of cold, but like it's not about that person or this person. It's about the God asked us to minister one to another, so we do it and we help each other out. There's a core to this loyalty of these mighty men. I love talking about this stuff. David puts the lives of his soldiers higher than his own absolutely unique in the ancient world. There's no record of any other king outside of Israel that puts the lives of his soldiers higher than his own life. Kings always put their own life higher than everybody else. They get surrounded by troops of soldiers so that the king's life is protected. The whole game of chess is about protect, protecting the king. That's a Persian game, right? So the idea that the leader gets celebrated David flips it around and says, no, these men's lives are far more important than my life. And he elevates them. This is one of the things David does. He puts his men first. 
Hopefully that's a model that we see in Judeo-Christian armies around the world. Leaders in, and, and leaders in those armies should put their men before themselves. They're willing to risk their life instead of their soldiers' lives. So this, this idea kind of gets its rooting in these verses. Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, verse 18, the son of Zeruiah, was the chief of another three, and he lifted his spear against 300 men, killed them, and won a name amongst the three. Yeah, you'd think you'd get a reputation if you did that. Was he not the most honored of the three? Therefore, he became their captain. However, he did not attain to the first three. So he's, he's good, but he's not that good, right? Abishai is the brother of Joab. Interestingly enough, Joab's name is not in the list of mighty men. If you've been in this Bible study for a while and you're coming every week, you know that Joab's had some issues that are issues of the heart. So these mighty men are men of the heart and they have a purity in that heart. Joab doesn't make the list even though he's the commander of the army. He's not good enough to be on this list. That says that rank isn't everything that David looks at in his men. That's really interesting too. It's not about what position you hold. It's about what heart you have. So this idea that Abishai was good but he wasn't one of the elite three, there's the kind of ranking system here that has to do with like a ranking of the heart. That's kind of curious. It's a really interesting text. So here's why Abishai and not Joab. When David was going to go down to Saul's camp, nobody would go with him except Abishai. There was one guy in the army that said, I'll go with you. It was Abishai. Back in 1 Samuel 26. This guy said, I'll go with Even if we die, I'll go with you because I'm with you in anything. That gets Abishai singled out on this list. He's one of three generals, so he's equal to Paul. And he wants to defend David's honor from Shimei's results, 2 Samuel 16. Remember, he's getting yelled at by Shimei, and he's kicking dirt on David. And Abishai is the guy that's saying, let me go end that, because I don't want to hear my king's name get put down like that. So he's a bold person, and we get some glimpses of Abishai and who he was. Um, and we, you know, we get this idea that Abishai stands out here because of his heart, not because of his rank. And I think that's just a, that's how God sees us doesn't matter where we're at in the kingdom of God on this earth's ranking system. God's got a separate ranking system that has to do with our hearts. And in that ranking system, the first can be last and the last can be first. Or if Joab's first, he might not even make the list. Right? And God looks at it in a very different way. Where's the humble? Where's the loyal? Where's the people willing to die for the name of Jesus? That we serve our king and it doesn't matter who's in the room. David's men are a reflection of abstracted ideas that David's been sharing with them for years. And in acknowledgement in writing, he's manifesting those abstracted values. And he's showing his nation what's important by making this list. These are the kinds of people that rise in the ranks. Then you get to verse 20. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, the son of the, a valiant man from Kabzeel, that's a place in Judah, who had done many deeds, He'd killed two lion-like heroes of Moab. He also had gone down and killed a lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day. That's an obscure little story. Like, who wants to crawl into the lion pit and kill it? And he's the one guy that said, I'll take care of it. And he did. I wouldn't want to do that. And he killed an Egyptian, a spectacular man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, so he went down to him with a staff wrested the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. These things Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, did and won a name amongst, among three mighty men. 
And he was more honored than the 30, but he did not attain to the first three. And David appointed him over his guard. Uh, What a great, like, just here's another character with these little snippets of why this character mattered. Clearly, bravery is there. Crawling into a lion's den isn't smart, but it's brave. You know, and there's just this purity of heart in these people, this boldness, willing to go up and fight. Uh, when you see the, a spectacular man there in the Hebrew, it's, a, this, it's the same root word we get for spectacles. It's This guy was something to see, right? This is like Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, back, back at 1500 BC. Like this guy was a visual specimen. And so when it says a spectacular Egyptian, it means he was extremely impressive to look at. But when it came down to it, the guy with heart beat the guy that was impressive to look at. Just a great contrast. Um, The fact that there's an Egyptian being fought by the Israelites is interesting. Like the Israelites throughout 1 and 2 Samuel, there's no record of a battle with the Egyptians. So either this Egyptian was like a mercenary or there's battles that the Israelites fought that simply weren't recorded in the book of Samuel, right? Either way, here's this Egyptian coming up. And if you're a spectacular person, like... Maybe he's, he's for hire and he's up doing it. But it gives you this idea that Israel, under the reign of David, was constantly at war with the enemies of God. Just a constant battlefield. There were raids going on on the borders. David's building a nation of peace in the middle of war. He's got to carve out this space. And he does. And Solomon gets an entire reign without all those conflicts. So the end result of those battles was peace. 2 Samuel 8.18 and Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites, but David's sons were the chief rulers. So this Benaniah, he's the captain of the guard of the Cherethites and Pelethites. Those both were non-Israelite groups that served. And remember when David split the military into the military and then the bodyguard, the Cherethites and Pelethites? He's the guy that's in charge of that bodyguard. So they stay loyal to David. He becomes a key person in Solomon's kingdom. So remember this name because he's a younger guy that David's raised up and promoted, but he's going to have a a stronger role when we go into Solomon's reign. In the transition, when David's giving Solomon advice, this guy is one of three people that David says, you trust this guy and you can put your life in his hands. He's absolutely solid. That's a good reference. Verse 24 Ashahel, the brother of Joab, was one of the 30. Wait, so two of Joab's brothers get into the 30, and Joab does not. Let's just, right. He dies in 2 Samuel 2, so there's another one on the list that's dead at this point. Uh, remember Abner killed him, and then uh, um, Abishai and Joab kill him in an avenge, as avengers. Um, Elhanan, the son of Dodo of Bethlehem, Bethlehem. Uh, Shammah, the Herodite, Alika, the Herodite, Helez, the Palatite, Ira, the son of Ikesh, the Tekanite, Tekarite, Abiezar, the Anathathite. Man, if it wasn't for that vow to every single word, I'd just be like, and then there's verses here. Mebunai, the Hushathite, Zalman, the Aholite, <laughs> Ahoi, well, Maharai, the net, I'm sorry, I'm just being a distraction now. Netophathatite, Helab, the son of Baana, the Netophathatite, they just put that in there to get to us. Ittai, the son of Ribai from Gibeah and the children of Bethlehem. Benaiah, the Pirathanite. Hidai, from the brooks of Gaash. 
Abi Elbon, the Arbathite, Asmaveth, the Barhuthite, Eliaba, the Shahalbanite, the sons of Jashan, Jonathan, Shammah, the Harahite, Ahiam, the son of Sharar, the Harahite, Eliphelath, the son of Ahabishai, the son of Mahakathite, Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gilanite, Ezra, the Carmelite, Paarai, the Arbite, Ilgai, the son of Nathan and Zobah, Bani, the Gadite, Zelech, the Ammonite. Wait, there's an Ammonite on the list? Yeah, there were non-Jewish people in the Mighty Men. God's kingdom's made up of people that are not Jewish, too. And they forget that by the first century, and they get pretty like, either you're a Jew or you're out of the program, but that wasn't how the nation was built. Naharai, the Berethite, armor-bearer of Joab, the son of Zeruai. That's the third time Joab's been mentioned, but not listed. I just, it's like David is getting back in his own way on this. Uh, Ira, the Erethite, the Earthite, Gareb, the Ithrite, and Uriah, the Hittite, 37 in all. So you got everybody in there. It looks like a kind of an ingredients list for a toothpaste. Um, that said, these names get written in the word of God forever. And their loyalty was not forgotten by God. We have a God that makes lists. It says at the end of days, there's a book of life. And if your name's in the book of life, you're going to heaven. So this is an important thing to see the character of God, even if I can't pronounce the names, and I'm sorry about that. Like, I try. God keeps track of things, even when it's generally, we've gone through all of First and Second Samuel, and some of these names have never been mentioned. They're absolutely invisible in the kingdom of God. But that doesn't mean God doesn't see. He sees all things, and he sees all people. And he sees who the faithful are, even if they're not in those positions, in those stories where they get named. Maybe they're not the, the extroverts. Maybe they're the introverts, the people in the background that get things done. And God doesn't forget about those people. They're important to him. And this list shows us the character and nature of God, that he keeps track of all of it. Uh, on Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gilanite, when you put that together with 2 Samuel 11:3, David asks, Is not Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So we see that Eliam's the son of Ahithophel, and when you put those two verses together, you get that Ahithophel was Bathsheba's grandfather. Remember we talked about that? It gives you some insight as to why one of David's closest advisors, Ahithophel, actually betrays him and goes with the rebellion with Absalom. It's because of what David did to his granddaughter. And I don't, know, I don't have grandkids yet, but boy, you mess with my granddaughter, I can already see in the future we're going to have a problem with that. Like, leave my granddaughter and my grandsons alone. And, right? Like, don't touch my kids. So I can see where Ahithophel would have been pretty upset with David there. Uriah the Hittite's listed as a mighty man. That's curious. David orchestrated his death, but he didn't purge the name from this list. I think that shows something about the absolute character of Uriah and what kind of guy he was and what kind of guy David was. Even though David orchestrated to kill this guy in absolute sin in a brutal, horrible way, David still recognized and respected that Uriah was one of the mighty men. He was there and he was loyal, even though David betrayed him. So his name stays on the list because David doesn't have the right to take it off that list. And I think David would have seen it that way. So there's 37 in all. They counted up in verse 39. Um, and in verse 24, it says one of the 30. So we have this. I think that's really important because it helps us get a clear understanding of how they wrote 
1500 BC, right? Is they understood that there's a number that's a generalized number and a number that's a specific number. And that gets important when we look at prophecy and other things, but this is a great reference point for that to say that clearly we know between verse 24 and verse uh, 39 that the writer fully understood that there's a difference between a generalizable number and a specific number. So just a side point, put that in your hat and keep it there. David's impact on these men is his ministry. Like at the beginning of this chapter, we got the list of the kind of the epitaph of David, and he's a great psalmist, but this is also in that chapter. His legacy is that Solomon inherited this group of people to run a kingdom. And what a gift that David gives to his son. What a legacy to take that over. What a beautiful thing. The work of a father can be fairly humble so that the work of a son can be expanded from that. That's exactly what's going to happen with Solomon. But the impact of David's life is all the people he touched, right? It's all the people that show up at the funeral. Like these are the people that this life was affected by. What a blessing. Good disciplined men, good families equal a good country. Again, I told you we're talking about government today. Solomon inherits good men with good families that build a good country, right? And these values that go out of the caves of Abdullam into the households of Israel, those values start to institute a law where people live under the law of God. And what a blessing that is to Israel. So then we get to the last chapter of the book, chapter 24. You all still with me? We're good for another one? Danny's nodding her head. Everybody else not with? We're still good? Okay. Verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, Go and number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Now go throughout all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and count the people that I might know the number of people. And Joab said to the king, Now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times more than they are. And may the eyes of my lord, the king, see it. But why does the lord, my king, desire such a thing? Why do you want this census, David? Nevertheless, the king's world prevailed against Joab and against the captains of the army. Therefore, Joab and the captains of the army went out from the presence of the king to count the people of Israel. And they crossed over the Jordan and they camped at Aror on the right side of the town, which is in the midst of the ravine of Gad and towards Jazir. And then they came to Gilead and to the land of Tatim Hadshai, and they came to Dan Ja'an around the Sidon. So really just what that equates to when you look it all up is they do a circuit around Israel. They make a big circle where they hit all the tribal areas. Okay, verse 7. And they came to the stronghold of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. And then they went out to the south of Judah as far as Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of the nine months and 20 days. So they started a spiral that's big, and then they worked their way in, and they ended up at Jerusalem at the middle of the spiral. Then Joab gave the sum of the number of the people of the king to the king, and there, was in, there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000 men. The eight and five together is 1.3 million people that could go fight. That's a pretty big army. So people struggle with this verse because the word he moved up in verse 1 is the word sut in the Hebrew. It means to incite or lure somebody. Uh, It's a minor but significant translation issue, at least in most Bibles. Um, 
we know throughout the rest of Scripture that God doesn't really force humanity. That's not God's character here. Um, So when it says that he moved David against them to say, that seems odd in the English. And sure enough, when you look it up in the Hebrew, it kind of resolves itself. So I want to, it says, again, the anger of the Lord kindled. Israel allured David against. In the Hebrew, there's no sentence structure with periods and commas. It just, you have to assume where the periods and commas are. And I honestly think in this one, and, and there's a number of commentators that see this, they should have put the period after kindled. So the anger of the Lord kindled, period, Israel allured David against. Uh, and, and honestly, in the Hebrew, you take out some of the thes and, and those transitionary words, and it simply makes more sense, and it fits with the character of God. Uh, in 1 Chronicles 21, it says, Satan stood against Israel and, and decided and incited David to the number Israel. Same thing there. Satan stood against Israel incited David, right? So there's something to do where the people of Israel or his advisors or his captains allured him into this census idea and said, David, we really need a head count. Um, but God, it's a, what's the problem with a head count? Like, why is this evil? Like, big deal. We do censuses in America all the time. Like, is this really a sin? Um, but to go and number Israel and Judah is in some ways, biblically, a kind of an evil instinct from a king. It's one of the warnings that we had. So Joab sees this too in verse 3. He obeys David in this case, but he kind of checks with David. They're like, you sure you want to go here, David? Like, you really want a census? And the reason he's hesitant, it goes all the way back to Numbers chapter 1, verse 2, and again in Numbers 26, verse 2. In both of those references, the king is not supposed to take a census unless God tells them to take a census. So the fact that Israel allures David into taking the census is not the source of census taking. Only God does that. Um, Here's some reasons why. Like this is problematic in the ancient world. To take a census for us, we hire an army of people and we just go to like mayors and say how many people are in your town. And they start looking at literally property ownership and number of residents per property. They figure an average, they get a census. If they really want a good sentence, they'll go knocking on doors saying how many people live here. It's a major investment. Even today with technology, it's a massive investment. So one of the problems in the ancient world is it takes an entire army of people. So you're committing your armed forces to doing this census task, which is a lot of money, a lot of time, and a lot of human energy for no purpose other than pride. And to just argue that you've got a big army. Like what good does that do a king of Israel when you don't need an army to fight your battles? It also take, it would take theoretically about 10 months to walk this spiral that got listed in these verses. 10 months. That's instead of your army defending the borders, instead of your army building a new road or some bridges or doing infrastructure, your army is doing something completely useless for 10 months. You lose a year of growth when you do this. So there's some reasons there. They're throwing this away. It's a deeply rooted kind of tradition in Israel not to do censuses. A king, Deuteronomy 17, 16, is not supposed to multiply horses nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. They're not supposed to build big armies. And, and, And the reason of that is they're supposed to trust in the Lord in all things. Don't trust in your armies. Don't trust in chariots. Trust in the Lord God Almighty. They're not supposed to multiply because God owns Israel and he commands any census because Israel is God's country, not the king's. 
So when the king's counting up troops, it's like, how many troops do I have? And that thinking alone is evil for a king of Israel. And it's been defined that way. Psalm 20, verse 7, some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we will remember the name of our Lord God. So pride and trust in your army is not a good instinct for an is- a king of Israel. And they're supposed to be different. So there's a ransom. <laughs> Every time a census is taken, they're supposed to collect from people like a tax. And that tax pays for the troops to be occupied for 10 months. So the way they did censuses in the ancient world had to do with this. It was a way to collect more money for the king. Another thing they're not supposed to be doing. So Exodus 30, verse 12, when you take the sum of the children of Israel after their number, this is a a census that God commanded, they shall give every man a ransom for his soul unto the Lord. And when you numbered them, there shall be no plague among them when you number them. So it's it's an interesting little thing that this is the instance where this gets broken. So why would you take a ransom to pay for it, and the ransom being paid means there would not be a plague? It's because when you send an army of people around to all the different tribes, they then become hosts of diseases and viruses. The great danger of a plague in the ancient world is you take the worst viruses and you share them with every town and every tribe. And they pick up a virus here, and they go to the next town and drop it off there. So one of the, it, it's a massive danger that you cause a plague by doing a census. It's one of the reasons God said don't do it, and when he commands them to do it, that ransom is to build the temple with, so he uses it for God's purposes, but he promises there'll be no plague when you do it. That means if you do a census without God's permission, there's no promise that there won't be a plague at the other end of it. That's important as we go on with the chapter. So you... Again, all of those reasons are like practical reasons not to do a census, but I'm going to give one more, and I think this is worth standing out. Abraham Seidenberg argues this, censuses were popularized not by the Jews, but by cultic practices and religions. To call everyone to a common location, a census usually had an ominous purpose. All of the pagan religions around David would use a a census to bring people together, count people, and get rid of the people that weren't worth anything, which is why it was so terrifying in the ancient world. When the king called a census, there was going to be massive human sacrifices in a lot of these countries. And when God says not to do that, it's because he doesn't want terror spread through his, his people. So it's a really, I, I, think, I, I just think that uh, Seidenberg's argument on that is really powerful. And if you're interested, he kind of goes into talking about that, and he kind of introduces each of these traditions and how that played out. Uh, And we have limited record of that because the victims generally don't write history. So the censuses were a top-down act of centralized power. One commandment from one human risking thousands, if not millions, of lives for that one commandment. How arrogant must a king be to risk other people's lives for his own pride? That's why a king of Israel isn't supposed to do this. Lots of reasons buried in uh, when they do that. So it's odd that the numbers aren't round. When you get to 1 Chronicles 21, Joab comes back and he says, you know, there's 170,000. So he doesn't give exact numbers on this. Um, Joab estimates the amount of time that it takes Joab's is arguably less than 10 months. So Joab does the job, but he doesn't do it very well, right? He's just kind of like, ah, there's about this many people here, and there's about that many people there. And he, does, he adds it up. 1 Chronicles 21, he skips the tribe of Benjamin because he just doesn't. And part of why he skips a tribe is because 
Benjamin was a tribe he just didn't want to terrorize, right? It's scary to have troops marching through your fields, right? They got to be fed. He also skips the Levites, which is according to the law, even when God orders a census, he doesn't allow them to, to census the Levites. They're already given to God. It doesn't matter how many of them there are. So again, he slightly disobeys David, and in this passage, we don't get to see that thing. But once again, Job kind of does his own thing, sticking to the law of God and disregarding his king. There's an awkward relationship between David and Joab. Um, then you get to verse 10. And David's heart condemned him after he had numbered the people, because he, so he felt guilty. So David said to the Lord, I've sinned greatly in what I've done, but now I pray, O Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I've done very foolishly. Something happens in David's heart, and he realizes this was the wrong thing to do. So David's not sinless. He actually records his sins. He repents, and look at what repentance looks like. Repentance says, I have sinned, and he owns it. I have done this thing. That's, that's the essence of repentance. He does it without presuming. Pray, O Lord, like he's asking the Lord. So he doesn't presume that the Lord has to forgive him. He asks directly for forgiveness. Take away my iniquity, right? I've sinned. Here's what I've done. Lord, you don't have to do anything, but please take away my iniquity. And he takes full responsibility for it. I've done very foolishly. Admitting sin is part of the clean heart that he claimed back in 22. So in 22, he said, I'm, I'm blameless. I have no iniquity. But here he's praying to remove his iniquity. Well, that's a conflict. No, it's that David trusts that when God forgives him, he's forgiven. It's not the argument that he's perfect, but it's the argument that under God's law, there's a path to salvation. Instead of running away from God, David runs to God because God's the only one that can forgive. And boy, what a great message for us. Especially when we backslide, when we make a mistake, when we screw up big time and we know it. We don't run away from God. You've got to go towards God. It's the only solution. If you've screwed up huge, don't run from the people of God. Come to them. And as people of God, we should be ready to forgive and know that people make mistakes. The perception here is that iniquity in the Hebrew, avone, is a perversity that has to be taken away. Notice Dave can't get, David can't get rid of it himself in verse 10. The Lord has to take away the iniquity. We can't take away our own iniquity. Man, that's horrible. I wish we could. Wouldn't it be great if we could get rid of it ourselves? You know, we just say some prayers with some beads in our hands and, and, and it's all gone because we did something to get rid of it. But it doesn't work that way. David prays that that thing he can't shake on his own, God takes it away for him. So one of the parting gifts of David, again, this is the end of his story. One of the parting gifts from David is he shows us what it looks like to repent. Like you talk to an old person on their deathbed and it's like, what's the most important thing I need to know? And David leaves us with these words. And I just, you know, this, hey, I had a group of great guys around me. I knew how to repent when I screwed up. You know, these stories, these add-ons at the end of the book, these last words are so great. So verse 11, kind of cruise through the end of this chapter. Now when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad. I just love that David prays to the Lord and the Lord responds through Gad. It's like, you know, I'm, God creates a little distance from David after this iniquity. David's seer saying, Go and tell David, thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself that I might do it to you. Kind of a famous story here. So Gad came to David and told him, and he said, Shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? 
Or shall you flee three months from before your enemies while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days of plague in your land? Everyone is the number three. That's the number of completeness, right? Why does God give David an option here? Now consider and see what answer I should take back to him who sent me. God tells David to think. David, consider. Like, take some time and think about this. What do you want? I think God's testing David. Like, David, do you know why I didn't want you to do this census? Do you have any idea why this was bad? So he's testing David to see if David even gets this. And David said to Gad, I'm in great distress. Please let us fall into the hand of the Lord, and his mercies are great, but do not let me fall into the hand of men. Go and tell. Great, just beautiful. God brilliantly uses David's situation to test and shape David further. God's training David. He can pick essentially from famine, warfare, or plague. So let's look at those three things. We've been reminded that plague is the danger of a census, right? So plague is why you don't do censuses, or at least David should know that. And the, in Exodus, the reason there was a tithe to the Lord or a gift to the Lord was so that the Lord would not have a plague in a census. So that's the issue. And David should know that. He's written out the word himself as a king, and he's supposed to have his own copy of the Bible that he wrote with his own hand. He should know that. The people moving around causes that sorts of things. Here's the situation. There's two other things that these cause. Ten months of troops walking around not producing anything creates its own kind of famine. It creates a food shortage. So there's a harm that comes from this. Not only that, when you count up your armies, guess what all your neighboring countries are thinking you're up to? It creates a friction with every one of your neighbors. Why are they counting armies? Why are they doing a census? And that numbering of people is an act of war that might be interpreted the wrong way by your neighbors. So any of these three things are logical outcomes of a census that God just put before David. Famine hurts the poor primarily. Warfare hurts the rich primarily, right? If there's no food, rich people just buy it. If there's warfare, it's the people that are trained in combat that have the money to buy weapons that die on a battlefield. Plague is indiscriminate. It hurts everybody. See, this is, he's given them three bad options. Like, God, where's the nice option? They're, all of them are bad. The amount of time for each one is interesting because it takes time for these things to play out. Earthly thinking, then, if I'm thinking like an earthly king, I either pick famine because I can buy my way out of it, and it's just the poor people that suffer, or I pick warfare because I can just burl it out in warfare. Like, you lose soldiers. They've already signed up to die, right? So either of those options is there, but as an earthly thinking king, you never pick plague. Because with famine or warfare, it's under my control. With plague, I got no control over diseases. So if we're thinking like kings, we never pick the third option on this. Pick one of the other two because it's in your hands and your control. So the distance between an earthly thinking king and a godly thinking king is which choice you make on these three options. The distance is a spiritual consequence, right? All the other options here are, have other kinds of consequences. So... Please let us fall into the hand of the Lord. David correctly sees this with a spiritual eye. Like, I would rather take plague because I know God. You can control plague. But when humans get vicious, bloodlust is unstoppable. And it's evil. 
And when famine happens, people get ugly. When things happen where people get ugly and sketchy, that's harder to control. But plague can end in a day if the Lord sees it fit. So he correctly chooses plague, which puts it in God's hands, and that's the reason he gives. And he incidentally corrects the exact connection that census has had in the book of Exodus to plague. So he picks the one that under the law is the reason you don't do a census. So maybe that's because David knows the law. Maybe he's just being wise. Or maybe the Holy Spirit's working through a good man's heart. I'll take three days of plague. Light of all the possible negative outcomes for sin, he chooses the option that is closest in God's hands because he knows that the punishment is just. By the way, you're saying, well, this isn't just. David wanted the census. That's why it's important to read the first sentence in the Hebrew, right? Israel's commanders and all of Israel convinced David to do this. They all did this together. So the consequence goes out to all of Israel, just like we saw in verse 1. So there is a, a connection here of what's going on. He's working through David as the king of Israel to determine how that's going to go. So sin is utterly destructive, and it's going to be destructive one way or the other. Uh, people that have sinned or done things that have destroyed relationships, families, those sins have consequences, and they're going to come, and part of that is to see the consequence of sin. It's a natural reaction to sin, and it's good for those consequences to land so that we sin no more. And that's the intent of some of those consequences, that they're there and God lets them happen because we have to get our heart trained so we don't desire sin anymore. So in this consequence that's happening, God's not going to remove all of it, but David knows that God has a heart of mercy and that he can relent from his punishment if he wants to. So the Lord sent a plague upon Israel from morning till the appointed time from Dan to Beersheba. 70,000 men of the people died. And when the angel stretched out his hand over Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the destruction and said to the angel who was destroying the people, it's enough, now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. And then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people, and he said, surely I've sinned and I've done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, be against me and against my father's health. David, like a godly saint, sin, says, let me take the punishment so that the people don't have to. We get this beautiful image of Messiah coming out of this. So the Lord relents, and he doesn't administer the full consequences of it. David was right in knowing the nature of God was a nature of mercy. He was right in believing that. Uh, didn't have to be any miracle for the plague to spread. The soldiers walking around alone would make the, census, would make the plague happen. But God intervenes then to stop that evil. So where God can be merciful, the wickedness of humanity is often vacant of such mercy. So David called it right. Second to last takeaway from all of First and Second Samuel for the reader, David understood how to repent, and that trumped all the sin that was there. He understood the nature of God was one of mercy. He wrote psalm after psalm after psalm about it. God is merciful. And you can write that when you've experienced God's mercy. So the last takeaway deals with a location and a summary of David's life. I'm going to read verse 18. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up and erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. The spot that the plague was ended was on the threshing floor of Aruna. So let's look at where that is. Right? First of all, we know it's by Jerusalem. And then we need to know something about threshing floors. What you did to build a threshing floor is you took the highest point around 
and you built it up about two to three feet on a concrete slab. And then when you shook out your wheat, the strongest wind possible would come by and it would blow away the chaff, which would catch in the breeze. And what's left is a nice pile of wheat. And then you can take that grain and move it into the grain stores by just brushing it off the concrete slab. So if we're around Jerusalem and we're finding the highest point in Jerusalem, one instinct is to say, oh, that's where the Temple Mount is going to be, right? The problem is the Temple Mount didn't go on the actual highest hill. So the Temple Mount was the biggest hill that was high, and it could be seen from all directions. So it was a wide space, but the threshing floor of Aruna is a slightly different spot. And it's an image of David. As we go looking for bread, we have to let the wind blow away the chaff. And that's what's going on with David. Right? So this threshing floor is a great image in and of itself. God sees a people, a tribe, a family, and now David. Throughout the scriptures from Genesis forward, he has narrowed down this line of, now we're down to the line of David. Initially, it was the people of Abraham, the Hebrews. And then it was the Israelites, right? And the, the, the sons of, of Jacob. And then it was the tribe of Judah. And now it is the family of David. And it's coming out of Bethlehem. And David's life starts in Bethlehem, but it ends essentially on the threshing floor of Aruna. This makes this a fascinating location. We've seen Bethlehem come up again and again and again as we've gone through First and Second Samuel. So this beautiful story of where this ends, it's an origin story for the temple. Second Chronicles 3.1. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem in Mount Moriah, where the Lord appeared to David and his father in the place that David prepared in the threshing floor of Oman the Ornan the Jebusite. It's right next to this spot, right? There's the Mount Moriah, and then there's this threshing floor site. And this is where Solomon began construction and oversaw the construction of the temple from this site. It's likely the site where Abraham offered Jacob, or Isaac, I'm sorry. Genesis 22, 2. And he said, take your son, thy only son, Jake, Isaac. Why do I keep saying Jacob. When thou, who thou loves, and get thee to the land of Moriah. We know Mount Moriah is where the temple was built, right? And offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of. We don't get the name of it. We don't get the place. But it's a high point next to Mount Moriah, right? Right next to, go to Mount Moriah, and I'm going to point out one of these hills around it. If you're standing on Mount Moriah, the only higher thing around you is... Mount of Olives across the Kidron Valley, but that's a long walk, or a very short walk, maybe about 50 yards, is a little teeny mound that you could never build a temple on. But that mound later gets called Golgotha, or Gordon's Calvary. Right? So if I'm standing on Mount Moriah and God's going to point out a hill, there's very few hills higher than Mount Moriah around it. So you've got it down to this little spot, and God points it out to Abraham, and Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah Jireh. <laughs> this is great. And he said in this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. This is the spot where we're going to see God's mercy for the world. This spot. This spot that's really good for getting chaff away from the wheat. This separating point for wheat and chaff that Aruna has come into ownership of. And David goes to buy it. Aruna as a name, by the way, is I shall shout for joy. Joyful shouting to Yah, right? This is a spot of joy by the name of this guy. And he went up. There's a huge indicator there. He went up to this spot, a site then that was higher than Mount Moriah, the most windy spot you could find. A spot that's so windy, it's not really good for crops. It's not really good for anything. 
I mean, you might as well put some crosses up there and make that your execution site because it's just kind of a barren knob of a hill. Golgotha, same New Testament area. Then we get to verse 19, knowing this about this spot. So David, according to the word of Gad, went up as the Lord commanded, went up as the Lord commanded, and now Aruna looked and saw the king and his servants coming towards them. So Arauna went out and bowed before the king with his face to the ground, and then, I'm just going to keep saying Aruna. Aruna said, why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, to buy the threshing floor from you to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague might be withdrawn from the people. Right? He's catching this image. This is the spot I'm going to take away the plague. And now Aruna said to David, let my lord the king take up and offer whatever seems good to him. Look, here's some oxen for sacrifice, the threshing implements, the yokes of the oxen for wood. All of these things, O king, Aruna is given to the king. The joy of the Lord says, I'll provide everything. Right? And God says, oh no. And Aruna said to the king, may the Lord God accept you. And Aruna offers everything, joyful heart, generous spirit. David, you can have it all. It's all you. I'll do everything for you. Jesus went to the cross before the joy set before him. Like you see the connections? Like it's all there. There's a deeper principle being spoken here than just we're going to take care of this plague for the thing. God's used David's story over and over and over to express patterns of the Messiah and he doesn't stop at the end of 2 Samuel. Listen to this. Then the king said to Arona, now I will surely buy it from you for a price. Nor will, nor will, no, but I will surely buy it for you for a price. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord heeded the prayers for the land and the plague was withdrawn from Israel. The priests offer sacrifices, right? Every time we've seen a king try to offer a sacrifice, that's a problem with God. Like, kings shouldn't be doing this. He's taking this spot because God told him to. That's the only reason he's not having the same experience Saul did. It's because God actually commands him to do it. So we have here a king that's doing the duties of a priest. It's the only time in the New Testament those two things mix without somebody getting leprosy or zapped by lightning. Right? So God actually honors the high priest not doing these duties, but the king doing these duties. The only other time you could argue that happens is in Jesus Christ, where God accepts Jesus as both the king and the high priest giving an offering. And joy says, oh, I'll do all of this for you. And the king says, I will not do something that costs me nothing. The high priest survived an entire normal lifetime because for every burnt offering he gave, he didn't give his own life. He would take a lamb or an oxen, and he would sacrifice the animal instead of himself. Substitutionary atonement covers all of Mosaic Levitical law. The exception, though, is a high priest can offer himself as the sacrifice for the people. It's perfectly under the law. In fact, that's the original law. So for Jesus to say, or for God to say, I won't give something to the Lord my God, something that costs me nothing. And for Jesus, it cost him everything. He gave his life. And he did it on this spot. Like, that's the crazy part. As David comprehends this principle, God uses the narrative of it to share a principle with us. That there's this idea of a king that's not willing to do something for God that costs him nothing. So David endures the full cost of this sacrifice. 
and takes it on himself. Ephesians 5.2, And walk in love as Christ who loved us gave himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Gifts and sacrifices were beautiful because they were humans rejecting sin and accepting God's grace. And in the same way, the Bible always perceives this as a beautiful act. Hebrews 9.26, since the foundation of the world, but now, once at the end of ages, he's appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. As David modeled to his mighty men what sacrifice looks like, Jesus models to us what sacrifice looks like. Just beautiful. As David models the idea of paying the price, Jesus actually pays the price. Like we get images in David that get fruition in Jesus in the real thing. Hebrews 3.15, you can tell I'm in Hebrews right now. Therefore by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. We don't have to give sacrifices because Jesus gave the one and only needed eternal sacrifice. But what we can do is offer praises to God for what he's done. Notice in our verses that David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. Burnt offerings is what Jesus gave on the cross. He atoned for sin. But a peace offering is something that's given when there's a relationship with God. It's a fellowship offering. And that's awesome because fellowship offerings, you wave to God and he just gives back the blessing of it and you take it back to your family and have a barbecue. Like it was sharing the joy of the Lord in the form of a feast, a peace offering. So when David does this, you can see Jesus is fulfilling the burnt offering part of this image. And then when you get to Hebrews, we do the sacrifice offering that's the offering of praise. The least we can do to say thank you to God is give him our worship and our praise. And we fulfill that other piece of that. Romans 12.1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, he's not, he's not conducting the punishment we deserve, by his mercies that you present your body as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. This all makes sense. And again, the, the idea there is we give our entire life back to God. And, we, and he gets to have it. We give our lives in exchange for what he's given us, all on this spot. He, he takes our life, and then he gives it back with blessing, just like a peace offering. Like, we give him his life, and we get more life as a result. How, what kind of great trade is that? Lord, you can have my life, and all we get is joy and peace, even in trials and tribulation, an enduring joy. This serious business started 3,500 years ago. The tradition we have when we give our praise to the Lord, it's a 3,500-year tradition. Think of that. Think of the, the way in which this is regularly a consideration of the people of God throughout all of human history. We give our service to the Lord, and it's reasonable, it's just, and it withdraws the plague of the land. When we do this like David did, God removes the plague, not only from our lives, but from the people we hang with. We become a blessing to other people instead of a curse. Think of that. Most of humanity is a curse to the people next to them. But in the kingdom of God, we take that away. We can take away the plague of hate and sin and rebellion, hurt, oppression. We can live in a different kind of way. So David, in verse 25, ends his days in fellowship with God. You don't give a peace offering unless the burnt offering has been accepted. So we know that in David, that when he ended his days, all the sins we read about, they're over because he finished strong. And the last recorded thing he does is a burnt offering and then, very importantly, a peace offering on the threshing floor of Aruna. 
And then I think, why didn't I learn about the threshing floor of Aruna in Bible school? Like, I went to a lot of Sunday schools when I was a kid. I think this is one of the coolest things to teach about. Look at this spot and how significant it is. Look at how God continues to mirror on this location and continue to expand revelation around our relationship with God through Abraham and then now with David on the same exact location. It starts in Bethlehem. It ends on Calvary. And we just see that in the Old Testament. And it's why in the book of Matthew, when they started writing, like people would read the book of Matthew and go, okay, I'm now a Christian. I give up. Like this is too connected. Like it all fits. And there's a sense of being a good Old Testament Bible student, like we all are in this room, that you by, by the time you get to the Gospels, it's like the final puzzle piece in the puzzle that the Old Testament gets. And you're like, this is so perfect to fit. There's no mistakes here. It's absolutely ordained. And you get to understand that God's gift was planned from the beginning of time. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your gift. We thank you for David. We thank you that he humbly shared his failings with us so that we could see what repentance looks like. He humbly shared uh, his arrogance and his pride and his lust, and he recorded it, and he allowed the priests to keep all the records because he knew how important it was for God's people to repent and renew. We are not doomed by our sin. We're shaped by your grace. So Lord, I pray if there's anyone in this room that does not have a peace offering with you right now, that is not in a place of sacrifice, they haven't given their life to you, but I pray that you, your Holy Spirit moves in their heart to change that tonight. Lord, that we give our lives to you freely and willingly. It's our reasonable service. And Lord, we look at David's life, we look at his mighty men, we look at the godly people he has surrounded himself with, not Joab. And we look at these people, Lord, and how they built a country, a country that would be an enduring light to the nations and that we would be recorded in the Old Testament and really forever in the word that you've written. And Lord, we know these things were meant for our teaching. They were meant to convict and rebuke us. They were meant to encourage and edify us. And Lord, they do just that. The power of your word changes our heart. We don't know how that works, but it does. So Lord, may we be testifying of your grace and your mercy in our lives, and maybe we'd be ready to show it in other people's lives too. Um, may your love endure, may your grace endure, may your justice reign, and may your mercy reign supreme. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.